Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Stop. This message could save you from investing your precious time into a true crime story that goes nowhere. Avoid that disappointment. You need True Crime Feed Podcast. Unlimited premium true crime curated for you. Find out about a female serial dater turned serial killer. The truth about the D.A.R.E. program. Bizarre black markets, political murder plots, and a school for troubled teens so horrific it could be a Stephen King novel. True Crime Feed sifts through the archives from the past decade to select the best cases and gives you a quick overview sprinkled with a teensy bit of humor, plus a weekly top three power ranking for shows currently trending, and lets you know what shows to send down your podcast queue trapdoor. You know you want those thrill chills, so come and get them. Subscribe to True Crime Feed. That's True Crime F-E-E-D wherever you get your podcasts. In the complicated world of journalism, where truth intertwines with perception and facts blur with speculation, there exists a realm shrouded in mystery, controversy, and potential dangers. Far from the world of sensational fiction, this phenomenon delves into the depths of investigative reporting, revealing the truth of covert operations, corruption, ethical dilemmas, and even murder. As the guardians of democracy, journalists have a solemn duty to uncover the truth, challenge the status quo, and hold those in power accountable. Yet, within this noble pursuit, an unsettling reality emerges, a reality where journalists navigate the murky waters of secrecy and deception. This exploration ventures beyond the headlines and exposes the secrets we all yearn to have validated. Join us as we unravel the layers of a story detailing the deaths of two journalists and a man who was mistakenly murdered in another journalist's place. The revelation of this story begins on one night in the year 1990 in the state of Arizona. It was May 14th and Doug Johnston left work at 11 p.m. The 35-year-old worked the night shift at a computer graphics company. Just one hour later, Doug was found dead in his car. He appeared to have been shot. His execution happened so quickly that he hadn't even made it out of the company parking lot before his life came to a tragic end. The killer was standing at least 12 inches away when they shot Doug behind his left ear, which ruled out the chances of Doug's death being suicide. Plus, there was the fact that he was right-handed, had no gunpowder residue on his hands, and had no gun on his person or in his car. However, despite all of the evidence, local authorities couldn't determine Doug's cause of death. What was even more odd was that they couldn't give a reason for being so undecided. 
Doug's family and friends were convinced that he was the victim of a homicide. But for unknown reasons, authorities have not determined that Doug's death was either a suicide or a homicide. Doug had just finished school and gotten a new job, which he was excited about. Those closest to him didn't feel like he would want to kill himself as he was starting this new chapter of his life. They also felt that they would have been aware of any suicidal ideation due to the fact that Doug was very close to his friends and family. What happened next in this case would set in motion a web of intrigue that is almost hard to believe. It all begins with a man named Don Devereaux. Coincidentally, Don lived across the street from the parking lot where Doug was shot. He also drove a similar car and lived in a similar house. Don's occupation would also be quite noteworthy. He built a career for himself as an investigative journalist, and he made a lot of enemies along the way. It was rumored that Don's work as a journalist had made him a threat to various mob figures in Phoenix. At the time that Doug was killed, Don was investigating the death of a man named Charles Morgan. We are now entering the next thread of this unbelievable web. On March 22, 1977, Charles Morgan, who went by Chuck, left his home in Tucson, Arizona. He was driving his two daughters to school that morning. Shortly after that, he suddenly vanished without a trace. In an uncommon twist, Chuck returned home three days later. His wife, Ruth, remembered that when he came home, he was missing a shoe, had a plastic tie around his ankle, and had his hands zipped tied together. His family desperately tried to get information about what happened to him, but Chuck wouldn't give it to them verbally. He refused to speak about what happened, but he would find another way to inform them. He grabbed a pen and paper and began writing down a twisted tale. He wrote that he had been kidnapped and tortured over the span of three days. His kidnappers had painted a hallucinogenic drug all over his throat that would kill him if he ingested it. Ruth asked him who kidnapped him, but Chuck wouldn't say. He just asked that she keep quiet about what happened and not call the police. He feared that a hit would be put out on him and his family if the police were notified. Ruth agreed to keep quiet and spent a week helping her husband recover. During that time, he revealed a secret to her that he had been keeping throughout their marriage. Chuck confessed that he had been secretly working for the federal government. He alleged that he had fought against members of organized crime while being an undercover agent. Sadly, he knew that this was not the end of his run-ins with members of the mob. Even though Chuck had recovered, he had become increasingly paranoid. He wore a bulletproof vest everywhere that he went. He also made sure that he personally drove his daughters to and from school. That was after he'd informed the personnel that no one, aside from him and his wife, would be allowed to pick them up. Even with all of that precaution, Chuck was still preparing for the worst. One day, while having a conversation with his father, Chuck told him that he had written an important letter. That letter would tell the reader who is responsible in the event that anything happened to him. Chuck clearly had a feeling that his life was still in danger. Sadly, his feelings would be validated in the coming months. Charles Morgan 
vanished yet again on June 7th. That is when his father revealed to the family that there was a letter potentially detailing the persons responsible. Chuck's family looked for the letter and could never locate it. Strangely enough, though, a woman called Ruth and told her that Chuck is all right, followed by a reference to a Bible passage. The passage reads, Men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. If Chuck was indeed all right, it wouldn't have been for very long. Just two days later, he was found dead. He had been shot to death, even with his bulletproof vest on. He had been shot in the back of the head with the gun that lay beside his body. There were no fingerprints found on the weapon. However, the evidence that was present at the scene created far more questions than answers. There was gunshot residue on Chuck's left hand, which would suggest that he was the one who had fired the weapon. There was also a piece of his tooth, weapons, ammunition, and a stranger's sunglasses in the car. Police had found a $2 bill that Chuck had clipped to his underwear. He wrote seven different Spanish names on the bill. Chillingly, Chuck had also written the same Bible verse that the strange woman referenced to his wife on the phone. On the back of the bill, Chuck appeared to have mapped out different towns known for smuggling. The strangest piece of evidence was what was found in Chuck's car. His car contained a note that he had written with directions to his own crime scene. Two days later, a strange woman phoned the Pym County Sheriff's Department. She reported that she and Chuck had planned to meet at a motel not too long before he died. At the motel, Chuck had allegedly shown her a briefcase full of money. He told her that he was using it to pay off a hit that had been put out on his life. She confessed to being the same woman who called Chuck's wife to tell her the Bible verse. Even with all of that information, the authorities ruled that Chuck's death was suicide. While they acknowledged that his life did, in fact, appear to be in danger, they believe he saw his only way out as taking his own life. When journalist Don Devereaux became aware of the case, he became certain that Chuck was murdered. He would then see just how strange things would become. Shortly after Chuck's death, his impounded car was broken into while it was in police possession. Around that same time, his office was also ransacked. Then, two men showed up at his house. They told Ruth that they were FBI agents and had to search her home for information related to an undisclosed case. When Don contacted the FBI to see what they were looking for, he was told that they had never even heard of Chuck Morgan's case. Those men were not from the FBI. Some suspect that Chuck's work led to him meeting some dangerous characters. Crime syndicates were flocking to Arizona in the 1970s because there was a law that allowed them to buy up land through blind trust accounts. Chuck, who did real estate escrow work for a living, would come in contact with those crime syndicates. It is known that he did work with at least one mafia family. The escrow work that Chuck was doing for them was actually just another way for them to launder money. Ruth recalled that on one occasion, Chuck told her that the less she and the kids knew about his work, 
the better it would be for them in the long run. Don DeVereux was able to find out that Chuck kept duplicate records of all of the transactions he did for the mob. Don believes those copies are the reason for his death. Then, in 1991, Don was contacted by a Washington, D.C. journalist by the name of Danny Casolaro. Casolaro was also looking into the case of Chuck Morgan and wanted more information from Don to support a piece he was writing. Before Don could send him that information, another tragic event would add to this web of mystery. In August of 1991, a town in West Virginia became the scene of an unsettling event. During the afternoon of August 10th, 44-year-old Danny Casolaro was found dead in a Martinsburg hotel room. A maid found him in the room's bathtub with his wrists slashed. They appeared to have been cut several times. The police were soon called to the scene in, in order to investigate. Conveniently, it didn't take long for them to find a suicide note. The letter read, To my loved ones, please forgive me, most especially my son and be understanding. God will let me in. In the bathtub beside Danny was a razor blade. An examination of his body found that his wrists had been cut a total of 12 times. There were eight cuts to his left wrist and four cuts to his right one. One of the cuts had gone so deep that it severed a tendon. Danny's wallet, with his credit cards and money still inside, was seemingly untouched in the hotel room. There were no signs of a forced entry or struggle that would cause the police to suspect any foul play. For reasons that have never actually been explained, Danny's family was not made aware of his death until two days later. That was just one of the many reasons that left his family questioning the cause of death. Danny's brother Tony contacted the police to get more information. He was shocked to learn that the officer couldn't even answer a lot of his questions. Tony asked specifically about Danny's papers. Danny worked as an investigative journalist and was deeply entrenched in a story at the time of his death. According to Tony, he had amassed a year's worth of notes and documents that were of high importance. Those papers were never found. Danny's family was also uneasy about the manner in which they say he killed himself. According to them, Danny was terrified of needles and getting any blood work done. They couldn't imagine that he would choose to slash his wrists to end his life. Danny's family also points to his final days as a reason to question the ruling. Just a few days before he was found dead, Danny was telling his friends about his work. Danny had told them that he was very close to breaking the story that he spent a year investigating. The story in question started as a simple inquiry. He was looking into the theft of computer software. As he kept digging, that story would soon take him in a direction that put his life in danger. That software theft led him down a path of tackling government corruption that would have potentially implicated United States Justice Department officials. The prevailing thought among his family was that he was actually murdered because of just how damaging his investigative piece was going to be for the people involved. Danny's investigative work started in August of 1990. He began by interviewing Bill and Nancy Hamilton, the owners of a computer software company, 
by the name of Inslaw. Their company developed a program called Promise that was seeking to change the workings of information management for law enforcement agencies. The U.S. Justice Department purchased the software in 1980. They were using it to help them handle their heavy load of case files. The first year of their work with Promise went very well for both parties. However, in the second year, the U.S. Justice Department started to withhold payments from Inslaw. Without those payments, the company had to file for bankruptcy. During that process, the Hamiltons learned that the Canadian government was using their software. This was confusing to them because they had never sold it to Canada. Bill and Nancy wound up speaking to a man named Michael Riconosciuto. He claimed to have done work for the CIA in the past. Michael told the Hamiltons that there were people involved in covert operations in both South America and the Middle East to distribute their software. They would then use the money made to fund subsequent operations. By 1989, this had become a full-blown scandal. The House Judiciary Committee opened a formal request in August of that year. Riconosciuto testified before the committee with the same information that he had given to Bill and Nancy. Just a week after submitting his affidavit to the committee, Michael was arrested on drug charges by agents of the Justice Department. One week before he died, Danny told his brother that he was beginning to receive death threats. The threats were frequent. Frequent enough to motivate Danny to tell his brother that if he ever turned up dead, it was not an accident. On August 8, 1991, Danny arrived in Martinsburg with several briefcases full of his notes and documents. He had planned to meet with some informants regarding his investigation. He was tracking the finances of what he referred to as the Octopus. That was his name for a network of United States officials, organized crime members, and intelligence agents. He had gotten in contact with a new informant who he believed could provide him with Iyer's printouts of certain members of this potential network. The day before his death, Danny met with a man named William Turner. Turner was a former employee of a defense contractor and one of Danny's sources. Turner claimed that he personally gave Danny paperwork that provided proof of corrupt activity tied to the octopus. Danny was dead the very next day and all of his papers were missing. With the ever-increasing controversy surrounding the case, authorities in West Virginia had another autopsy done on Danny Casolaro. Tony learned that his brother had been embalmed without any consent from him or the rest of the family. While the autopsy did confirm that his slashed wrists caused his death, other factors suggested that there was someone else in the hotel room with him. There were bruises found on both his arm and his head. Strangely, the tips of his fingernails were missing. Danny's family also found out that a professional cleaning crew was sent to the hotel one day after his death. They, of course, wound up destroying crucial evidence in the case. However, one of the crew members did recall seeing two bloody towels in the bathroom. It looked as if someone tried to clean the blood up off of the floor just before the cleaning crew had arrived.
Danny Casolaro and Charles Morgan were both deeply involved with something sensitive that threatened a lot of powerful people. It is the logical conclusion that they would have been murdered to prevent certain secrets from being exposed. But that begs the question, why was Doug Johnson murdered? He was neither a journalist nor a businessman who got mixed up with a dangerous crowd. What would be the motive behind his execution? Perhaps he was never the target to begin with. If you recall, Don Devereaux was a journalist looking into the death of Charles Morgan, who was most likely executed because of what he knew. Don happened to have lived across the street from where Doug was murdered, had a house similar to Doug's, and drove a similar car. Could Don have been the target all along? Six months after Danny Casolaro was found dead, Don was told by a colleague that there was a hit placed on him. The journalist also informed Don that Doug's death was a case of mistaken identity and that Don was actually the target all along. Don was able to confirm with a CIA agent and an informant for Israeli intelligence that there were threats to his life. It seems that going public with this information may have saved his life. <laughs>